I know some of the challenges has been no PowerPoint. I've been feeling that too. So if you go to the website, uh, I put our PowerPoint slides on uh, the homepage of the website, uh, or our comms team did, uh, if you'd like to access those. Fred, you're going to do some, uh, some lifting, some demonstration of those guns this morning? Thank you. They're out of ammo. <laughs> they are out of ammo, Fred said. So if you want to follow along, uh, the PowerPoint is available on the homepage of the website. We're up in Door County camping, and so if you can imagine what camping meant for us, you guys think we tent camp? Or do you think we rented an RV and had it delivered to the campsite? Between the two, what might you guess? But it was quite the adventure because we arrived and I guess there's something called bug spray you're supposed to put on? No joke, I think I have like 40 mosquito bites on my back after the first night. That night, in our camper, one of my kids rolls off the bunk in the camper and we're making an emergency room visit in Sturgeon Bay. Then third night, the carbon monoxide alert in the RV goes off and, and now we're wondering, we're gonna get like carbon monoxide poisoning? So the fire department drives to the campsite. I'm wondering, do we wanna go camping again? <laughs> but God is good in the good times and, and in the challenging. I, I don't know if you feel this, Dave Broom, we're still praying for him who's in the hospital. And, uh, and every time I open my email, I, I, I hesitate because uh, I don't know what news might be waiting on the other side of a phone call or an email these days, right? We just think of what's taking place in Afghanistan, <laughs> uh, what's taking place around the world, uh, what feels like it's taking place in our country. And so we just want to continue to be faithful. Uh, and if you're new with us, this feels like an incredible time to join in because we've been taking the summer to explore together, we believe, what we rally around, what we anchor our lives in. But if you're anything like me, we not only want to engage the mind, we want to awaken the heart uh, because there are truths we claim to believe. But man, if I'm honest, there's an apathy sometimes I feel to these deep, profound truths. What I love about what Fred said, if you heard the podcast this past week, you know, if I watch a Packer game or a Vikings game and I look to the end and I know the score, I know the Vikings are going to win the game. It ought to change the way I interact with that first down or interception that might take place along the way. But those circumstances still rob me of joy from time to time. Last week, we talked about what does it look like to continue to gain perspective, believing there is an eternity waiting that ought to change the way we interact with our circumstances. And so today, we're interacting with one of those ways that, hear me say, hits me pretty hard. And so we have kids ministry. If you're still wondering whether your kids should be in there, there's the possibility. For me, we're just going to have ideally a conversation about the intimacy we crave and try and press in to this tension that we're looking around and experiencing in our culture. Um, and we've been asking this question to help even gauge our own hearts. Are we aware of what's forming us, where we spend our time, our treasure, our talent? And, and I think the elders, and we are incredibly thankful for the generosity of, of you guys, of our people that continue to invest in this mission of being a people, helping people find life with Jesus one life at a time. And I hope we collectively are getting a lens of where we spend our time, our treasure, our talent 
And, uh, and so I, I want to read a few quotes to ideally frame the discussion uh, of just where, where our culture is at as it, as, it, as it comes to this conversation of human sexuality. And then we want to spend time reflecting on our culture's view of human sexuality, of, of God's intended design of human sexuality, and then press into where we can continue to grow and respond as a church family in the midst of the culture we're planted in. But here was a few quotes. And, and, and I'll start here. Maybe this is, this is me just giving some perspective to alleviate my own tension. This feels so broad. <laughs> to try and tackle human sexuality feels so broad. It might feel that we don't answer any of the questions you have. We at least are trying to attempt to say this is where Hillcrest stands and we want to continue to move forward and learn and grow and take this posture. And so I just assume it's going to be broad, but we're going to wrestle with, I hope, just the, the broad view of, of men and women and their interaction with sexuality, this, this growing sense of, of what transgender and gender fluid looks like, and then also the same-sex attraction and how we might take a posture in the midst of that. So... Here's a few quotes that stood out to me. This comes from a, a, public, a publication called The Atlantic entitled The Sex Recession. The author says this, these should be booming times for sex. The share of Americans who say sex between unmarried adults is not wrong at all is at an all-time high. New cases of HIV are at an all-time low. Most women can, her words, at last get birth control for free in the morning after pill without prescription. If hookups are your thing, Grinder and Tinder offer the prospect of casual sex within the hour. The phrase, if something exists, there is porn of it used to be a clever internet meme. Now it's a truism. Sex is portrayed often graphically and sometimes gorgeously on primetime cable. Sexting, statistically speaking, is normal. Polyamory is a household word. Perversion has given way to cheerful-sounding Words like kink. Anal sex has gone from a final taboo to fifth base, written by Teen Vogue. And of course, non-consensual sex more generally. Our culture has never been more tolerant of sex in just about every permutation. And yet, here's the statistics she shares. And I want to share five quotes. In 2018, the number of American adults who said they hadn't had sex in the past year rose to an all-time high of 23%. From 91 to 2017, the percentage of high school students who hadn't had intercourse dropped from 54 to 40%. The demographic having the least amount of sex, predictably, is those older than 60, but those having the second least amount of sex are 18 to 29. Today's young people are having significantly less sex than their parents are, and yet our movies media leads us to expect that movie-like sex happens spontaneously after a few drinks with an attractive partner picked on a dating app. But the relaxed nature of a hookup culture, which is supposed to make casual sex easier, ends up muting it all together. Turns out, and this is a quote from the Gospel Coalition, people like having sex with people they like. Who would have ever thought that sharing intimacy casually with a near stranger doesn't feel safe or enjoyable? Another shift. We saw a shift happen about 2015. There was a movement in our culture to endorse same-sex marriage. And then here's a quote from the 1992 Supreme Court case about Planned Parenthood versus Casey that begins to make way for this transgenderism debate. In defending the right to abortion, Justice Anthony wrote in the majority opinion, 
At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. And one of the descending judges said this, if this relativism becomes the coin of judicial realm, this was in 1992, 30 years ago. We are in for very, very bad times indeed. Judicially, politically, morally, if these words are taken seriously, how can we legislate against doctor-assisted suicide or drug use or prostitution or virtually anything else for that matter? The danger is the anarchy could be from such officially sanctioned rulings. 30 years later, this is the growing trend of this relativism. Spoken by a political commentary, quote number four, by a guy named Zach Patankis says this, your gender identity determines your gender, period. But when asked whether a person can change biological fact of one's race, he said, no, you cannot change your race. Your race is not up to you. So the question that the author asks in this particular article, is Patankis being illogical or inconsistent? For defenders of transgenderism, the application of subjectivism itself is subjective. They refuse to be held to a standard of logical consistency because they, no, one on, no one on their side will hold them accountable. The justification for school policy is because transgender students do not feel comfortable sharing facilities with those they perceive of being the opposite sex, yet non-transgender students have the same concern are labored, labeled bigots and transphobic. One last quote from a book called The Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. The author Abigail Schreier says this, and she tries to put a dot on where this comes from. Nearly every novel problem teenagers face traces back to 2007 and the introductory of Steve Jobs' iPhone. In fact, the explosion of self-harm can be so precisely pinpointed to the introduction of this device that researchers have little doubt of its cause. The statistical explosion of bullying, cutting, anorexia, depression, and the rise of tra transgender identification is owed, is owed to the self-harm, instruction, manipulation, abuse, and relentless har harassment supplied by this single smartphone. And I remember this in my own life when Casey and I were going through our infertility challenges. It felt like technology outpaced character as we were interacting with a doctor and they were explaining some genetic studies that could be done to determine some potential abnormalities in these, um, in these um, embryos and whether we'd want to terminate them, it allowed for a conversation for us to say we, we would not want to go down that route. And yet this opportunity that technology provides seems to have outpaced ethics. She says this about the new affirmative care standard of mental health professionals is a different matter entirely. It surpasses sympathy and leads straightforward to demanding that mental health professionals adopt their patient's beliefs of being in the wrong body. Affirmative therapy compels a therapist to endure a falsehood, endorse a falsehood that, that a teenage girl feels more comfortably presenting as a boy, not that a teenage girl feels more comfortable presenting as a boy, but that she actually is a boy. <laughs> So I don't know about you, I just feel the pain that exists all around me globally, culturally, in my own heart. And so as we enter, here's the big idea that we're entering in. And yet I also want to lay a few ground rules as we enter into the conversation. So I'm going to read the statement as we speak to our doctrinal statement. But then I also want to lay a few ground rules. 
So we believe that God wonderfully creates each person as male and female and that these two distinct permanent and complementary genders together reflect the image and nature of God. We believe that God created marriage to be exclusively the union of one man and one woman, which signifies the mystery of the relationship between Christ and the church and the intimate sexual activity is to occur exclusively within that union. So we want to explore our culture's view of what we believe the Bible claims to be true about this human sexuality and then try and understand how we might grow and respond with four primary ground rules. That one, may it's not a sin to be tempted. That there is this pressing on our lives all the time. It is not a sin to be tempted. And willingly embracing inappropriate expressions of relational intimacy is evidence of not trusting God. Fighting temptation is evidence of trust, but a conviction that we all have room to grow. So pray with me as we try and dive into this intimacy we crave. God, you are so good. We want to look to you on how you've designed life to work and fight the temptations that surround us and live with a sense that we all have room to grow. So meet us in this place in the midst of swirling, competing ideas. Help us be grounded in your word. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So Genesis, we're going to start here and use that as a launching point. So Genesis 1, we're on slide 11 right now. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 and 31 says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over every living creature on the ground. And God saw it, all that he has made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So let's press in our culture's perspective. And we sat with the staff and elders and just began whiteboarding what is it that our view of our culture says about this thing called human sexuality? Here were a few things that came to mind. That there's just this consumer mentality. That we swim in this culture of consumerism. Whatever I want, I get it. Anyone, anything, anytime, it is all about me and my needs. And that this biological process is something that can separate physical and emotional intimacy. That we're craving intimacy and yet we pull apart this idea that we can have physical intimacy separate from emotional intimacy. That there's this constant encouragement to try and explore, do whatever you feel is right. But I love this. Our culture gets this. It's enjoyable. This thing called sexuality is actually something God intended to, for us to be enjoyed. And I do appreciate this. It does seem consensual is important to our culture as it, as it attempts to confront some of the abuse they see. But also, no liability. There's no cost. It feels to me, our staff and elders as we wrestle, it feels like there's no cost associated as our culture views this, God, this gift of human sexuality. 
And, and, and they believe, it seems, the easiest way to intimacy. We understand we're craving intimacy. This is an easy pathway to experience intimacy. But on, on slide 15, it seems that boundaries have become this archaic, unhealthy, repressive, anxiety-inducing, pleasure-decreasing thing when it comes to human sexuality. The idea of removing boundaries seems to be where our culture views this idea of human sexuality. And then the staff did the same exercise with the staff and elders. How might we see God's design for this? You doing all right back there, Tom? Tom, you doing okay? You're doing a great job. Thank you. That as we read Genesis 1, we see this God-ordained relationship between two sexes, male and female, meant to be enjoyed with a purpose. That marriage reflects this deeper relationship, and there's this exclusivity and commitment till death do us part. And again, I love this idea. It's meant to be enjoyed. But within this exclusive intimacy, not just physical intimacy, but intended for emotional and spiritual intimacy as well. And actually, boundaries increase the enjoyment. So, so here's where it feels like we respond. Up until this point, I go, I don't think anything is new on there. Here's how it feels we typically respond. Man, what a ride. Just that wind. I would much prefer the wind than the humidity, though. Is that right? Dude, I was up in Door County sweating bullets. It was so stinking hot. I just walked out of the trailer, out of this camper. I had the fan blowing on me all the time. As many, my kids wanted the fan. I'm like, forget that. I'm turning the fan towards me. Here's, here's our typical response. Slide 17. Feels like we fall into a, a few categories. We either want to fight flee or accept when it comes to this, this increasing, pervasive cultural view of human sexuality. If you believe and adhere to this God-ordained, God-designed, you, you tend to fall in one of those three categories where you just want to fight. And, and it feels like that it stems from this idea that just God hates sin and he calls us to get rid of it. Here's the challenge. When that perspective is taken, it feels like it's actually produced a, a culture that feels hated by Christians. The other category, where you just accept it and say, well, this is life. This is just what our culture says. Seems like it's actually done th this, this problem where, where we think God loves us and has no problem with us distorting his design. And it's okay not to trust him in this area of life. And what it actually seems to produce is people thinking they're okay with God. Or you just want to flee. And you want to go to a state that doesn't have these problems. Or you just want to retreat to the north woods to your cabin where you don't have to deal with anybody. And you just want to flee from the situation. I think of three situations that have happened recently. We think of there was a drag queen story hour in the Oregon Square. It might have led some people to fight and protest or send angry letters to the library. It might have led some to accept and celebrate what was taking place 
Or you might have just wanted to tuck your head into your shell and not want to deal with it. Feels like there's this sense of pronoun usage that's being asked in our workplaces. Some of us might want to fight and lose our jobs over it. Others might say, well, I, I actually want to affirm their lifestyle. Or others might want to flee and tuck your head as long as you possibly can. We look around in this tarnished view of God's design in terms of pornography and heterosexual couples that just seem like they prefer not to actually be together. We just want to see a, a, a distance. And so it could be this, this sense of fighting and looking through our window and condemning all those who are battling this, this human sexual condition. It might cause us to just accept and say, you know, this is just who I am and it is what it is. Or I might want to flee and not think about it. Here's where I hope we stand and we're continuing on. Slide 19. There's this tension of compassion without agreement. How do we demonstrate a compassion without agreement? Because here's the tension. If I show compassion, it could lead people to believe I'm agreeing with your stance on life. If I demonstrate a lack of agreement, it could lead people to believe I'm not showing any compassion. Anyone want to take a guess? Someone else who wrestled with that tension? Here's what Jesus says, and I'm going to read about six verses. Because here's what we're trying to do at Hillcrest, right? <laughs> we're trying to take our cues from Jesus and hear from him through his word. Man, we spent the whole summer anchoring our lives in this text. Man, th th this is where we find our, 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 our ideas, right? I'm tempted to believe whatever I feel today. We're trying to say, do we believe this to be true? And am I experiencing it as real? Here's what we hear from Jesus, Matthew 9, 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, him hanging with people that did not fit the Jewish law. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew 19, 11. The son of man came eating and drinking and they said to him, look at him. What do you think they said about him? Man, this guy's really finding the tension between compassion and agreement. What do they say? Jesus, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Mark 2, 15 to 17, and he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees who saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? If you haven't gotten the picture, tax collectors and sinners was a bad thing in this time. Not something that was looked on highly. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Luke 15, one to seven. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. 
What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who have no need of repentance. And then this beautiful story of Zacchaeus one of those tax collectors. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. So he surried and came down and received them joyfully. And when the Pharisees saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. So our typical response feels like it falls in one of fighting, (laughs) fleeing, or just accepting. At Hillcrest, I hope we see a different line that we're attempting to draw, one of which says we just want to stand on these convictions of how God designed human sexuality and life to work. So so do you go to the story hour? Because if you go, it might be perceived as agreement. If you leave your kids at home and you go, it might be perceived as agreement. Or it might be you attempting to demonstrate compassion and pursue those that have yet to treasure Christ. Do you use someone's pronouns based upon their desire? It could be perceived as agreement. Or it could be perceived as not showing compassion. We want to stand and invite people into this loving life with Jesus. When you see the tarnished view of God's design... Do you call people out and blast them? Depending on the relationship, somehow Jesus shows compassion without showing agreement in some beautiful way. That is where we keep moving towards. Because can someone treasure Jesus who's in a sexual sin? Can someone who says they're gay treasure Jesus? Can someone who's battling pornography for years treasure Jesus? Can someone who's wrestling with this intimacy we crave treasure Jesus? Here's what we're saying. That to treasure Jesus is to love him above anything else. That he is the one sitting on the throne of our hearts. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, that you've submitted your life to him, that you've said that there's this brokenness that exists by nature and by choice in my life. I want you, Jesus, above anything else this life has to offer. And then to actually continually fight temptations that do not promote his glory and our greatest happiness in him. Till he returns or calls me home, we are fighting for more joy in the way he designed life to work. And man, is there a brokenness that causes us to screw up continually? We fight to not look through our window and condemn, but rather look at the mirror and see the brokenness in our life. And live within God's intended boundaries. Because I don't know if you've had this. This experience, this is what conversion is. This is what John Piper says in his book called Desiring God. He says this. 
once we had no delight in God and Christ was just a vague historical figure, what we enjoyed was food and friendships and productivity and investments and vacations and hobbies and games and reading, we're on slide 28, and shopping and sex and sports and art and TV and travel, but not God. He was an idea, even a good one. Something miraculous happened, a topic for discussion, but he was not a treasure of delight. Then something miraculous happened. It was like the opening of the eyes of the blind during the golden dawn, first sun, first the stunned silence before the unspeakable beauty of holiness, then the shock and terror that we had actually loved the darkness, then the settling stillness of the joy that is the soul's end. The quest is over. We would give anything if we might be granted to live in the presence of this glory forever and ever. And then, faith the confidence that Christ has made a way for me, a sinner, to live in glorious fellowship forever. The confidence that if I come to God through Christ, he will give me the desire of my heart to share his holiness and behold his glory. Before the confidence comes the craving, before the decision comes the delight, before trust comes the discovery of the treasure. That we long to live in light of God's design for human sexuality and are the benefits and consequences, yes, yeah, are there consequences for not living in that design and yet the benefits of seeing that exclusivity? You know, it feels like all around my culture, anybody work out? I have people that are in that world, you can tell all the time, right, for me, all the time. I mean, it's, I just live for working out. So I wear this Kalo ring. Have you guys seen my ring? It's a silicone band. You know who, you know who wears these types of bands? Policemen, firemen, like first responders, like, man, the people that work out so they don't have their finger ripped out, and me. I mean, we just, we demonstrate a, just an active lifestyle with this band. So it, everywhere you go in the fitness world, what do they tell you? Don't eat 12 Krispy Kreme donuts. Why? Because those boundaries are actually going to make fitness more enjoyable for you. But don't you know that I love Krispy Kreme donuts? Those things are fantastic. Man, don't eat ice cream. What do fitness people tell me? They put boundaries around how life is intended for work in their world. We see boundaries all over our culture, and yet when it comes to human sexuality, we ditch God's design for boundaries and say there are no boundaries. Instead, what we at Hillcrest are saying is there is beauty in God's design. There is benefits. And there's a quote from Sean McDowell that speaks to this. In his book, Chasing Love, Sex, and Relationships in a Confused Culture, he says this, imagine a world in which everyone followed God's design for sex and marriage. There would be no sexually transmitted diseases, no abortions, no brokenness from divorce. Every child would have a mother and a father and experience the love and acceptance each parent uniquely offers. There would be no rape, no sex abuse, no sex trafficking, no pornography, no need for a Me Too campaign. Think of the healing and wholeness if people simply live Jesus' life-giving words regarding human sexuality. So how might we respond if we believe this to be true? How might we at Hillcrest grow and respond? We're on slide 20, 32. And I hope you hear it. We would want to celebrate God's beautiful design for this human relationship of human sexuality. We would want to celebrate it. We would want to talk about it more often, about how God designed life to work. And yet, I think we would be appropriately more open about our challenges. How might people get a sense 
that rather than looking through my window and seeing all the brokenness, if I looked in the mirror and I appropriately shared the challenges that I experienced. And then, what might it actually look to be more aware of the vulnerabilities to abuse that exist all around us? Hear me say that does feel like a sense of where we are growing as a culture. People get a sense, they see the hurt and brokenness and they're trying to respond to the abuse they see. What would it look like for us to grow and respond? For wherever you might find yourself, I was speaking to someone recently and they were sharing about the trauma and sexual abuse they experienced from divorce and challenges. What might it look like to experience the forgiveness as intended and to express God's forgiveness where appropriate? And I'm feeling the weight as a parent to invite my kids and educate them in a loving way about what this beautiful design of human sexuality as God intended it to be. So here's where I want to leave us. We're on page 30, we're on slide 33. If we look and we see the way culture divines human sexuality and we see the church offering something else in the way God designed life to work, how might we respond? Here's the posture that I would hope we would take as Hillcrest. And it stems from value three, we care about generous relationships. What would it look like for us to lovingly stand and point people to Jesus with the tension of being confused? Compassion does not equal agreement. With the tension that I might be perceived as unloving or I might be perceived as in agreement. Here's how I hope we respond that we will actually be people helping people feel loved by us, though their lifestyle choices are not affirmed by us, and we build the opportunity to point them to Jesus. That we know God's plan for deep and lasting happiness, and we recognize where maybe even the cultural perspective has influenced our perspective. What are we watching and consuming on Netflix? Where are we making choices with our time, treasure, and talent? And may we view those who have an ungodly perspective about how God designed human sexuality to work, may we view them with this, never expecting those who don't love God to hold the Christian perspective and view every individual as created in the image of God. And be more dedicated. You heard, you heard Rosa and Dave say this, right? Be more dedicated to actually hanging with those who need Jesus. To be more concerned about people's eternal destinies than their sexuality. Inviting them to put Jesus on the throne of their heart. There is a line, right? There are boundaries. Intended for our good. And to be more devoted to promoting Jesus' love above all else. To be more committed to building relationships where we establish that we and God love them. And always lovingly point to God's design. Never compromise. Always stand. I don't know who's in your life this week. I don't know where you find yourself on this journey. I I would imagine we feel that tension of how do I demonstrate compassion without agreement? What might that look like in your life? 
I think it at least very at the very minimum begins with this conversation with those around us. Help me understand your perspective. With the conviction that it will lead to you getting the opportunity to have a conversation around God's design for human sexuality. And maybe when appropriate, share some of the challenges in our lives as well. May Hillcrest be a people helping people find life with Jesus and meeting people knowing they're looking for intimacy and offering something infinitely better, namely Jesus. Pray with me. God, you are so good. We want intimacy. We want relationship. And we fight temptations. Help us fight for more life in you. And may we stand as people who have a desire to find life with you and express compassion without agreement to those we interact with, longing for people to come and find hope and fulfillment and significance in you. Always for your glory we pray. Amen.